Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we take a brief pause from the book of Genesis as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Today, Pastor Josh will show us nine points, principles, and truths of why Christ was resurrected. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 5 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Why Jesus Rose. If you're staying in here, you can begin by opening your Bibles to John chapter 5. I'm going to jump around to a lot of different places this morning. But John chapter 5 does have a section that contains many of the truths we're going to look at. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read a section here down to verse 29, several points that are made about the authority of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. So John 5, beginning in verse 18, let's read the scripture together and then we will need to pray together. So beginning in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, now that's according to their definition of breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, And shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Please bow with me and let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, God, we are a room full of sinners who do not deserve eternal life, do not deserve the kindness that you give us every single day. God, we are a people who deserve only to be cast away from your presence. But because of who you are and your great love, you have devised a plan to save a people to yourself. And God, we gather here to draw near to you. God, in this room, there's a mix. Some who have turned from their sins come to Christ in faith to be saved and have been made sons and daughters who are right with you and then others who up until this morning at this time, they've resisted you. 
They've refused to honor the Son as you have commanded us to. God, what I ask is that every single person, whatever it is we need, every soul in this room, please, God, come and work, pierce, Father, so that every single person, we're drawn to you in the way that we need. For your sons and daughters who trust in you, God, that we be grown, strengthened, encouraged, also convicted. But God, those that have not yet turned to Christ, please, God, work in such a powerful way. Bring conviction so heavy they are miserable until they see that their only hope is you and they run to you, O God. Father, I'm a sinner I have no worth that I deserve to be to preach. And God, the lips I'm going to use to speak have sinned against you thousands of times. But I ask for the grace of God. Enable me to make me useful. Help me to preach. And God, every person here, help us to hear, to receive your word, oh God. Please bless this time for your glory. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. When a husband romances his wife when he pursues her he's displaying something when he goes after his wife to try to soften her heart he is he's showing something he's displaying something and what results is this circulation of joy when a wife reveals her beauty to her husband and he is drawn to her what happens is this circulation of joy When an artist paints to the absolute best of his or her ability, produces this masterpiece, there's there's a way in which the artist is displaying the best of what they have so that an audience is drawn. When the audience sees the beauty, they are brought to joy. And what you have again is this circulation of joy by displaying beauty, displaying glory. One of the things that God tells us in the Bible is that the chief thing, if you want to understand this world and understand who God is, the primary thing that God is doing in this world is displaying his glory. It's displaying who he is. It's displaying everything about him that is majestic, that draws our awe, our wonder, our adoration. It brings us to our knees to, to weep in joy and gratitude over who he is and then what he has done for us. The glorious God is displaying who he is displaying his glory to draw men and angels to worship him. You're not going to understand God and you're not going to understand this world until, until you, you begin to think with this kind of, in this kind of way in these kinds of terms, that God is about displaying so as to draw worship to himself. We see this come about in creation. Every time you see something beautiful, experience something beautiful that God made, like marriage, like tucking your little babies in at night and your heart just wants to burst, just feeling so deeply over them, you you are experiencing something God made and he is drawing you, wooing you to feel worship. He is showing his glory. But not only does creation show God's glory, We're actually showing that there is a way that God displays his glory that is greater than any 
other way. If you come here to True Vine often, you know what I'm going to say because we see it often in the scriptures. It is what God has done in Christ is the greatest way that God is displaying who he is. Every part of his attributes, everything that is magnificent about God is displayed in the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ so as to save a people to himself. God is displaying things. We we see this explained to us when it comes to Jesus' death. Jesus was put to death publicly, and we're told that God made it very public on purpose so as to display his justice. Lest anybody get the wrong idea that God doesn't care about sin. He's just going to forgive you willy-nilly, just wink at your sin, whatever. Lest there be any misunderstanding, the justice necessary for sin was executed onto Christ, but it didn't happen like off in some woods somewhere. It was made very public, has been proclaimed the world over so that everyone knows the justice of God for sin has been executed. And we're going to see, friends, that in a similar way, just as Jesus' crucifixion displays attributes of God, parts of God's glory, his wrath, his righteousness, Christ's resurrection also displays things as well, displays another part of his glory. It's important that we get this in our minds because what we're going to do today our study, you know, every, every year, Resurrection Sunday, you know, we, we, we talk about the resurrection here, the death and the resurrection of Jesus every single Sunday here because it is the center point of Christian worship. This is the only reason why we have a relationship with God. There is a, a time for uh, remembering in a special way every year, Resurrection Sunday. We look at a different aspect of Jesus's resurrection. Here is what today is. I want to show you ways that the resurrection is significant, we might say things that it accomplished and then truths that it displays. I'm going to show you nine ways that the resurrection of Christ is significant. Nine ways that Jesus' resurrection either accomplishes something or displays something, but that we won't quite get it if we don't comprehend that our God is displaying his glory to draw souls to himself. So what is displayed? What did the resurrection accomplish? We're going to talk about nine of them this morning. So if you're a note taker, I'll try to say it slow enough that you can jot it down. Here is number one, Jesus's resurrection displays the power of God. Jesus' resurrection displays the power of God. This is an easy one, so we'll go kind of quickly here. And some of these are kind of obvious. We'll work through them. But there are some great things that God displays in this. But Christ's resurrection displays the power of God. If you're in the book of John and you want to follow along a little story, jump over to chapter 11 for a moment. We're not going to read a section out of there, but if you just kind of want to see a storyline unfold, here's what's going on in John 11. In Jesus' earthly life, he had made friends with a family of brother and sisters named Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. You may remember them. And Lazarus, there came a point where Lazarus got sick. And they sent word to Jesus and they asked him to come so Jesus would come and heal Lazarus so that he would not die. And when you read the chapter, Jesus intentionally waits a couple extra days on purpose so that Lazarus would be dead by the time he got there, okay? 
You got to see the sovereignty of God to do things like that. You got to be okay with Christ being sovereign to work all things for his glory. And even in this, he specifically says there are ways he was going to display the glory of God. So Lazarus, excuse me, Jesus shows up to Lazarus and Martha and Mary's house. Mourners are there. They're, they're having the, the post-funeral kind of family gathering. Friends are there. They're weeping. Lazarus has been laid in a tomb. The stole, stone has already been rolled in front of the door. Martha and Mary hear that Jesus is there. Mary just stays inside. Martha runs out to Jesus and she says something to Jesus. And we don't quite know the full tone of what she said. I'm not trying to imply anything nasty, but I do think we may hear a bit of frustration there. Martha comes out and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, a couple things we can kind of see from there. Number one is, she's kind of asking, Jesus, why didn't you come? Like you, why did you wait? But secondly, do you notice this? When Martha runs out to see Jesus, she doesn't say, oh, everything's good now. Stop crying, mourners. It's all going to be fine. Lazarus will be awake in no time. She doesn't say that. Why not? Because in her mind, death seemed insurmountable. She's not even considering the fact that it's a possibility that even though she had seen hundreds of miracles that Jesus performed, in her mind, there's not even the thought that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. You guys, think about it. She had seen healing. She had seen blind men see, deaf men hear, lame walk. She had seen Jesus control forces of nature. Jesus spoke to a storm, told it to shut up, and it obeyed his voice. He spoke to wind and waves, and instantaneously it obeys his voice. But in our minds, there's something about death. There's something about death that just seems impossible to overcome. The greatest force that we know of here. And you know the account there by the end of the event, Jesus walks to the front of that tomb, tells them to roll the stone away, simply speaks to a man who had been four days dead. The dead man walks out alive and something has been displayed here. To, To help feel the effects of this, the next time you're at a funeral, and you walk up and you go look at that body, that corpse that no longer has a soul, ask yourself the question, do I believe that this body could live again? Okay, as dramatic as that would be for that person to just rise at that moment, okay, so dramatic it was whenever Jesus walked to the front of the tomb, spoke to a dead man and had him come forth. And in Christ's own resurrection, listen friends though, he displays a power that's even greater. What is displayed in John 11, Jesus speaking to Lazarus and calling him forth is showing his sovereignty over life and death. Jesus can heal. Jesus can speak to storms, but can he really conquer death? John 11 shows us that he can. He speaks to the dead and they come to life. But Jesus' own resurrection shows a power that's even greater than that. Not only does he have sovereignty over the life and death of someone else, he has sovereignty over his own life and death. Here's a couple verses from John 10. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. 
Jesus's resurrection displays the power of God over every force, including the force we think of as insurmountable over death itself. Number two, Jesus' resurrection fulfilled the prophecies which declared that the Messiah would suffer and die, but yet would live and reign forever. Now, if you remember, uh, this was a message we looked at on a resurrection day a couple years ago, and we looked at places from the Old Testament where uh, prophecies were given about the coming Messiah, places like Isaiah 53 and some of the Psalms in which it was said, this was in the Old Testament, Some of the Psalms were written 900 years before Jesus came to the earth. And it was said the Messiah would one day come and he will suffer and die. And yet even in the same chapter, there would be mention of the fact that he would live and he would reign on earth as king forever. How can both of those be true? How can he die and yet reign forever? The the resurrection is the way that the prophecies were fulfilled and God brought this about in a specific way to display the fact the scripture cannot be broken. Every word of God will be kept until the end. Number three, Jesus's resurrection promises your resurrection. You can jot down 1 Corinthians 15 on your own. That's what we read in the scripture reading time just a little bit ago. But here is one of the pivotal points in the logic that's laid out in that chapter. Christ's resurrection was meant to be a promise, a guarantee for all who are in Christ. That that language of in Christ, that's language that the Bible uses to speak of those who have heard the message called the gospel, the message of Christ that you must be saved And the only way to be saved is by turning away from rebellion to God, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, and then calling out to him to be saved. Over and over again in the Bible, this theme is brought through. This is the one thing you need more than any other. You listen to me very carefully, more than the oxygen you're breathing right now, you need to be right with God. You must be saved, the Bible says. I know culture makes fun of language like that. Who cares? Jesus said it, I'm taking him. Jesus said you must be saved. The one way to be saved is by placing your faith in him. And what the Bible says is whenever you come to Christ like that, 20 things happen at one moment. You're forgiven by God, cleansed by God, accepted, adopted into God's family, all kinds of language of born again. You passed out of death and into life. You're made a citizen of the kingdom. 20 different things are happening. Here is one more of them. You enter into a covenant with Christ. You you enter into a relationship with Christ. The Bible says you are united with Christ. And all who are in Christ have the promise that just as Jesus was raised, so you will be. Jesus' resurrection is the promise and guarantee of all of his people's resurrection. But I I need you to hear this very carefully. You, You can't just sit there if you have never personally come to Christ specifically to be saved, specifically repenting of your sins, turning to him, calling out to him, knowing you knew this, you can't just sit there and think that this applies to you just because you were born in America and it's a Christian area. You can't think that this applies to you just because you agree, nod your head. You have to get this for yourself. Grandma's faith isn't gonna cut it for you. You have to have your faith for yourself. You must personally turn to Christ, believe on him, trust in him, cry out to him, 
And understand that when you come to him, you are making the decision, I am going to follow him for the rest of my life. All who are in Christ, who have been born again, you will be raised on the last day. Number four, Jesus' resurrection confirms and authenticates that he is who he says he is. Confirms and authenticates that he is who he says he is. If you're in John 5, uh, or in the book of John, flip back to chapter 5 again there. Uh, jump to verse 36, if you will. I want you to notice what Jesus says here, and then we're going to make a couple points about it. John 5, 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. That's speaking of John the Baptist who came before him. Everybody knew of him. Everybody knew of his preaching at this time. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now here's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus came to the earth, the primary mission was to come and die for sins, raise, to accomplish what is necessary to bring salvation. But there are a number of other things that he did as well. Jesus lived a life. He lived three and a half years of an, of an active ministry. Healing. Miracles. The supernatural. These works were making it evident that Jesus is not just a mere man. He's fully man, but he's not a mere man. And he's saying that it proves I've been sent from the Father. Friends, do you also see, it's not just the miracles that Jesus did. It's also the life that he lived, which is very clearly and sincerely godly, righteous, like the works that he did caring for the poor, ministering to the hurting. I was reading in Mark this week, and you know, all the gospels tell us some of the things that the others don't and some of the miracles that took place and such. And I, I don't know why, but this week when I was reading in Mark, I was just really hit by this episode that Jesus has where he encounters a man with a speech impediment. You see the, the tenderness, the compassion of Christ. He walks up and gives attention to this man who was hurting and, and heals him of this ailment that no doubt had brought embarrassment and things to his life and no doubt had been mocked and ridiculed. And I, I just see the kindness of Christ like you got chaos all around, babies who need healed and people with extreme sicknesses. And, and here's Jesus giving patience and just this care to a man with this ailment. And friends, that defined his life. Jesus didn't give a, a token kind of ministry to the hurting like politicians do. You know how politicians, they show up to the children's hospital for five minutes, make sure 10 cameras are there, okay? Then they walk off grumpy. Okay, that's not how Jesus cared for the hurting. Long, exhausting days. Like, like, like when you read the Gospels, you just see some of these times where you get it. Jesus, in his humanity, okay? Yes, he's God. He can tap into supernatural strength. For the sake of identifying himself with us, he did not do that. He felt full humanity. Jesus had just at times to just be exhausted to the point of just falling over, caring, ministering, blessing, healing. And Jesus says, my works show that my Father has sent me. Because it, it authenticates the fact of who he says he is. And friends, in that same kind of way, other passages we've read about the resurrection and we're going to read show this as well. Jesus' resurrection, the king of all of the works that he performed, authenticates that he is from the Father. He is who he says he is. 
Jesus' enemies were constantly saying, no, he's not of God. He's evil. Jesus is evil. And Jesus says, look at my works. My works authenticate that I am from the Father. And Jesus' resurrection authenticates that. Jesus' enemies and even skeptics today who question whether or not Jesus is raised, whether he is who he says he is, the Son of God, Lord of heaven and earth, they question everything he says because they question who he is. When Jesus says you must be saved and you must repent and believe to be saved, they question that because they question who he is. But what if the Father were to speak from heaven? What if the father were to speak from heaven and say, no, he's my son. Listen to him. He did that, by the way. But the resurrection is God the father from heaven crying out, yeah, listen to him. The resurrection confirms and authenticates he is who he says he is. And friends, comprehend this. If Jesus is raised... You don't have to go around wandering through all the different world religions and testing them all out to see how they feel, to see if you think they're right. Jesus is raised. He is who he says he is. He says he is the one way to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's either right or wrong about that. If he's raised from the dead, he's right. The resurrection confirms this. Number five, Jesus' resurrection declares that he is the Son of God the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, Jump over to the book of Romans for a moment. You might keep your place in John 5 because we'll come back. Jump over to Romans chapter one for just a moment. And let me show you a brief place here. In Romans chapter one, here is how it begins. Introduced to Paul being set apart for the gospel. The gospel is the message of Christ, the message of salvation. Paul says, my entire life has been set apart for that. And jump down to verse four as he talks about what the gospel is about. Jesus, okay, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's ask this question. What does it mean that the resurrection declared declared with power, declared Jesus to be the Son of God. The resurrection is not what made Jesus the Son. Okay, so it's not like he you know, got promoted somehow to this place of Son of God. No, he was already the Son of God. And to make sure you have it straight in your heads, Jesus was already the Son of God. And let me make this clear. There was never a time that Jesus was made like never a time in eternity past before the world was made that Jesus didn't exist and then the father brought him forth some way. No, 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 that's, that's not the way that this works, okay? We've already fought those battles in history, okay? We condemn them as heresy, right? Heresy is something that is so far out of bounds of clear doctrine that it's rejecting something, okay? To say that Jesus was made or created, that is heresy. We've been there, done that, fought that battle, You got to get straight in your heads. What the Bible says is that Jesus is eternal. He has eternally been God with the Father. That's John 1. We're going to go there in just a little bit. John 1. So what then did the resurrection do? If Jesus has already been the Son, then what did the resurrection do? What it says is it declared it with power. It heralded it. It preached it, it showed it, it displayed it and displayed it triumphantly that Jesus is the divine son of God. We'll spend a little time on that one for a second. He is the divine son of God. 
And the reason why there can be a little confusion on that is the word son of God is used several times in the Bible. So for instance, Adam is called the son of God in scripture because he was the first man ever made. We also see if you are a male in this room, you have turned from your sins, bowed to King Jesus, placed your faith in him, called out to be saved. You are now sons of God. If you're a lady and you have repented and turned to Christ, you are daughters of God. But understand this, Jesus is not the son of God like that. Jesus is the unique son of God. He is the divine son of God. And that's the significance of some of these places in the Bible that that talk about this and that use language like Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Let me show that to you. Jump to John chapter 5 again. John 5, if you find verse 18, look what it says there. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father. Watch this last phrase. Making himself equal with God. Jesus was calling himself the son of God, not like I'm a son of God. I've been adopted into the family of God. Jesus is the unique divine son of God. Watch this, who is of the same nature as the father. Jump to John chapter one. Let me show this to you. These these are things just so breathtaking. John one, start in verse one there to kind of set the tone. First three verses. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, through Jesus. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus has eternally been God with the Father. Look how this is further explained. Jump down to verse 14 for a second. And the word became flesh. Jesus entered time and human history in this world, took on a human body, dwelt among us, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what did the text say there? He is the only begotten of the Father. Now, here are things I don't like to have to deal with, but it's the world we live in. If you have an ESV sitting on your lap, very popular translation, said the preacher, okay? Little frustration here with the way that they have rendered this. They've taken out the word begotten for the full reason we can have coffee sometime, talk it through and show you all those things. But let me tell you what's going on behind the scenes in in the background there. Okay. In the Greek, we only talk about these things when there's like a really important word. And I think you'll see this very quickly. The word in the Greek is monogenesis. Mono, meaning only. We've brought that into English. Then genesis. Let me spell genesis for you, transliterating the Greek to the English letters. G-E-N-E-S-I-S. Now in English, what word did I just spell there? Genesis, okay? Genesis meaning beginnings, origin. Genesis is the Greek word that the New Testament uses to speak of fathers begetting children. That word, mono only, and genesis, only begotten, is applied to Jesus. So what are we supposed to draw from that? We've got a number of pregnant ladies in the church. We're excited about that all the time. Uh, We are excited about God bringing more babies into this congregation. We love the crying, fussing, agitating, all of it. Remember that? We love it, okay? Love all of this. All of you ladies who are pregnant in this room, none of you are afraid that what you're going to beget 
what you're going to give birth to is a monkey or a dog, okay? You're fairly confident it's going to be a human baby, okay? You might call your husband a dog. Doesn't mean he will beget a dog, okay? Your confidence is going to be a human baby that's there. Why? Because when you beget something, you beget the same nature as yourself. Listen to me. This is what is said of Jesus. What is being shown here, Jesus as the only begotten of the Father, the unique, the divine Son of God, Jesus is the same nature as the Father. Now, when you hear that, if you ask the question, okay, he's begotten, but he's eternal, he was never made, how do those two things go together? Welcome to the mystery of the Trinity. Welcome to how we spend our nights sleepless trying to get to the bottom of this. Listen, the the doctrine of the Trinity, probably the deepest most mind-blowing doctrine that we are shown in the Bible. You can't get your mind around God, and aren't you glad you can't? He's infinite. You are finite. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Well, now that you see that, jump to verse 18 of John 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see that language? The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Okay, all of this is clear. Other places like John 3, 16, 18, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, all 1 John 4, all use this language. Even Old Testament Psalms use this language of the Messiah. He is begotten of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the divine Son of God. And listen, the resurrection heralds that. The resurrection displays that and displays it triumphantly, the only begotten of God. Here's number six. Jesus' resurrection is the way that the Father declares that the sacrifice of Christ as the substitute for sin is acceptable. All right, I said that fast. Let me say it again for you note takers. Jesus' resurrection is the way that the Father declares that the sacrifice of Christ as a substitute for sin is acceptable. Here's what we mean. If you want to jot down Hebrews 10, 10 to 13, you can look at that on your own sometime. The purpose of Jesus's death was to pay the justice price that we are owed, to satisfy the wrath of God, to be a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. My sins deserve death. Jesus took death in my place. But how do we know that it worked? So that's great in theory. How do we know that it was acceptable to God? How do we know that the payment was actually made in full? What if Jesus, in the agony of the cross, would have sinned in his frustration and then his body become blemished and the sacrifice not good enough to pay for the sins of those who would have come to him? How do we know that God accepted it? The resurrection is the father showing his pleasure. The resurrection is the father saying paid in full. Jesus's last thing that he said while hanging on the cross before he cried out and gave up his life is it is finished. The resurrection is like the father hearing that and saying, amen. It is finished. It is paid in full. We're shown that it's satisfied by the resurrection. Number seven, Jesus's resurrection completes the triumph and victory of redemption. Jesus' resurrection completes the victory of redemption. You can look at some places like Romans 4, 25, 
1 Peter 1, 3. You'll see language like this. Here's 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, listen to this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. And here's why we look at this. This one I think is a little bit harder to see. My mind has a little bit of difficulty getting here. The Bible shows very clearly how Jesus' death accomplishes redemption of his people. Like that's shown hundreds of times. Even going back to the book of Genesis, we see that a life has to be taken for for. Man, to have a relationship with God, his shame has to be covered. A life has to be taken. The Old Testament sacrificial system, God set up this system that for there to be atonement, basically saying for sins to be dealt with so that we can be right with God, to have a relationship with God, for there to be atonement, blood has to be spilled. A life has to be taken. Someone has to take our place. Because sin deserves death, I have sinned against God. I deserve the death penalty. That's what the Bible says of every one of us. I deserve death. The only way I can be right with God and my sins cleared is for a life to come in my place. Jesus' death was offered for the sacrifice of all of us. But here's some of the difficulty. How then does the resurrection fit into what's necessary for that redemption, for that work of justification? I think it's kind of like in the sense Christ went to battle against all the forces of darkness and he defeated them. But if a boxer in a fight knocks out his opponent, but he himself gets knocked out at the same time, you see that every once in a while. Yeah, he beat his opponent, but he has not won. Even in the rules of modern day boxing, it's a draw at that moment. The only way you win is if you stand up and you walk out of there victorious. Christ died to pay for sins. His death accomplished this, but the resurrection is how he completes this. The resurrection is how he walks out of there as the victor. He walks away in triumph, completes the work of redemption, and yet lives. And taking that same idea, here's number eight. Coming close to the end here. Number eight is Jesus' resurrection displays his sovereign rule and defeat over all of his enemies, his sovereign rule and defeat over all his enemies. If you want to jump to Ephesians 1, we're done with the book of John for now. Not very many more places we'll go to, but Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to look at just a quick section here. Ephesians 1, start in verse 18 here, and what you have is Holy Spirit showing you what are the absolute most critical truths you must see. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, now watch this, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Here's what the text is saying. 
God the Father has brought all things and put them under the feet of Christ. That's kind of a metaphorical way of saying Jesus rules over them all. Christ rules over the cosmos. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, even upholding the cosmos. He holds the universe together. So everything that you see is under the rule of Christ and what is specifically highlighted, every enemy, every demon, Satan himself, all of the wicked are under the rule of Christ. Now, a couple questions to ask about that, to understand it. One is, here's the most common question when people see this. If Jesus is Lord over all of his enemies, then why do demons and Satan and Hitler's and Kim Jong-un, why do they get to run around this world? Why do they seem to do whatever they please, cause evil, torment people? And friends, the answer comes in that the whole point of this age, God could have gotten rid of evil already, but that would mean something. You would have been involved. You would have been wiped out in that process. God is going to deal with evil. But one of the things we have a hard time with because we have pride of our hearts that likes to think so good of ourselves, because we're surrounded by a culture that's always telling us how wonderful and beautiful you all are, we have a difficulty seeing that when God deals with evil, yeah, he's going to deal with Kim Jong-un, but he's also going to deal with your unbelieving neighbor that you think is really nice, but nice isn't the same thing as being right with God. And any of you in this room, you, you might be, humanly speaking, an upright citizen, mostly moral, but you got to comprehend that if you are refusing to turn to Christ to be saved, you are resisting the rule of God. You are refusing to acknowledge and honor the Son as God commands that you do. You must be saved, God says. That is the moment that you become right with Him. And one of the questions we asked last week was, aren't you glad that God didn't deal with evil on the day before you came to faith in Christ for you who have? So we got to understand, if Jesus rules over all evil and all of the enemies, then why are they running around? The answer is, he is going to deal with it. In his patience, he is waiting every day that he waits, that is more souls who are entering the kingdom of God. And when the day finally comes that he addresses the evil, it will all be crushed under his feet. It will all be sentenced to an eternal hell. But every day that God delays that is the day that you have an opportunity to enter the kingdom. It's the day that you have the opportunity to come to Christ. So that's the first question that a lot of people have. But here's the second question. If God the Father has brought all things into subjection under the feet of Christ, how did he do it? What brought it about? And the answer is raising Jesus from the dead. The act of the resurrection triumphed over every enemy. In Genesis 3, we're shown that picture. God gave the promise way back in the garden. The day would come that a man, a seed of Eve, would come and would crush the head of the serpent. We see very clearly scriptures show that Jesus' death on the cross is the act whereby he has crushed the head of Satan, defeated all of his works and has made the way for salvation. 
We're told that his heel would be bruised in the, possible, in the, in the process. Jesus' death was that bruising of the heel as he stomped the serpent. But if Jesus' death is him stomping the head of the serpent, and by the way, the book of Revelation speaks of Satan as a serpent as well. But don't think a tiny little garden snake. It refers to him as a dragon. If Jesus' death is the stomping of the head of the dragon, then the resurrection is Jesus walking off in triumph over his enemy to the praise of all of the redeemed and the angels. His resurrection finished his victory over all of his enemies and has secured that all of his enemies will one day be crushed. And then here's the last one. Jesus' resurrection glorifies the Son to the high and lofty glory that God the Father has wanted to exalt him to. Let me say it again in case you're writing it down. Jesus' resurrection glorifies the Son to the high and lofty glory that God the Father has wanted to exalt him to. God the Father has wanted to honor Jesus so high that at his name, we will fall. We will fall in gladness, in worship, in love, and in joy. Everything that God the Father has done throughout history has been to glorify the name of his son, to honor him. Even the timing of when Jesus was brought into the world. You know, we've talked about the fact that humanity sins in Genesis 3. Look, Jesus could have come in Genesis 4. Why did God spend the season of human history that he did before Christ was brought into the world? All of it was to prepare us, to prepare the world so that when Jesus was presented, the world was feeling, aching, longing, longing for a savior, longing for redemption, longing for a righteous ruler. I don't know about you. I'm I'm kind of tired of the rulers we have. I'm ready for a righteous ruler. Longing for this. Longing for the king who will rule in joy and bring this kingdom. God has worked in history so that at the presentation of Christ, that we would feel his glory in a deeper way. It is the Father's will for Jesus to be exalted to a high place of worship in our hearts that we would love him supremely. Jesus died for us. And listen to me, Christian. The more you come to understand the gospel, the more moments you will have where you weep in gratitude over what God has done for you. And I, I just want to say this, not trying to you know, be, be cruel or anything, but if you have not yet come to a place where you weep in joy, weep in gratitude over your salvation, what God has done for you, you're not seeing it yet. You're not getting it yet. You're not yet seeing how awful the hell you were going to really is. How great, how majestic, how joyous that kingdom that is prepared for his people really is and what great love has been poured out on us through Christ. Jesus died for you. There is a certain part of his glory that we see in that. A love, a joy that we're drawn to in that. It is the design of the Father that you would feel an uncontainable joy in Christ and worship him as in a way that you only can when someone has died for you. 
Jesus' death shows you a part of his glory, but listen to me, his resurrection shows a different part of his glory. His death, his humiliation for you shows one side, but his triumph over all enemies, over death, securing your redemption shows you another part of his glory. Death grabbed Jesus. Jesus grabbed back, stomped his head, stood up and walked out of the tomb in perfect health and life. As you look on a king marching through the streets after victory in war, we are meant to boast in Christ. There's a part of joy we have in his death for us. There is another kind of awe, another kind of wonder, another kind of boasting in Christ that we are to feel that he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling the cosmos. He is upholding the cosmos by the word of his power. Every planet, every micron in existence obeys the voice of Jesus. He's ruling. There's a certain kind of glory we're to feel in that. His resurrection is the beginning of his exaltation. He is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth and angels fall before him in worship. The people of God do now, but one day everyone will. I don't care how much you may hate Jesus right now. You are bowing. You are falling. But the people of God fall in joy. The people of God in love and in the greatest demonstration of our exuberance. We will cry out that Jesus is Lord. Friends, the question of your eternity is have you come to him? Have you bowed to him? Have you trusted in him now like he is the king? Let me just tell you one of the most dangerous things that is happening in American religion. It is this idea that if I know some things about Jesus, nod my head whenever religious things are said, show up to church occasionally, that that means I'm right with God. You cannot bow to Christ in what repentance really is and then go on to live a life how you want to live. Bowing to Christ, what real repentance is, you see him as king, you treat him as king. doesn't mean you become perfect, but it does mean that you would be if you could. It does mean at that moment, I want to obey him with everything that I have and I am declaring, I am confessing, I am going to follow after him. You will not be right with God if you simply have some feel good moment right now where you pray a prayer. But if you walk out of these doors and for the rest of your life, you do not live in submission to Christ. You're not right with God. Understand this. You can be saved in the next 20 seconds. If your heart will turn in your heart, decide to bow to Christ, trust in him, believe on him, Lord and savior, cry out to him in prayer, in your hearts. You can be saved. Even though I'm talking right now. But don't think that some little feel-good moment means you can go live however you want for the rest of your life. Bowing is bowing for a lifetime. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Come to him. Come to him. The question of your eternity is, have you come to him like that? Have you turned from your rebellion? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? 
Have you cried out to him and are you actively following after him right now? If you want to do that, as I'm saying these things, if you recognize that you have never turned to Christ in faith, let me implore you, don't leave, don't do anything else until you are confident that you are right with God. You can have that right now if you will pray. So here's what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bow to pray here in just a moment. I'm, I'm going to give about 30 seconds, 60 seconds or so of silence. If you want to pray to be saved, this is a time, this is an opportunity for you to do that. And then if you want to talk with somebody after the service, I'm going to be at the back there. Or you can talk with Pastor Ben. If you want to talk with somebody, ask more questions about what it means to turn to Christ like this, what it means to be saved, come find us. But do not leave this place today without knowing that you have eternal life and you're right with God. Let's bow. Oh, Lord, our God, week after week, we say this. After looking at your word and seeing another part of what you've done, we say, how can we ever thank you? We want to worship you in the purest and greatest way we possibly can to show you our love and gratitude for what you have done. You did not have to send Christ, but in mercy he has come and offered salvation. Bless us, your people, to walk in joy and live obedience to show you our gratitude. But God, I, I pray for this room right now, any souls in this room who think that all this is ridiculous, maybe got drugged here by family and really just think this is stupid. God, I beg you just bring them to bow, humble them, O oh Lord, that they see your greatness. Show them your truth. Any, O oh Lord, who think that they're right with you, but have not come to Christ, show them their need of you. Show them they need to be saved. And God, please work that today. Our God, we love you, we praise you today, and we will praise you for eternity, for what you have done in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray, amen. God bless you all. Happy Resurrection Day. Lord will, we'll see you back next Sunday. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Why Jesus Rose. Tune in again next week as we return and continue through the book of Genesis. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.